welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Morgana, and with me is... Barbara. And this week we're going to be talking about the medieval and early modern roots of conspiracy theories. Specifically, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Well, anti-Semitic roots of popular conspiracy theories and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories because there's a lot of anti-Semitism in the conspiracy sphere. Yes, even when it's not obvious which it that you know things isn't. that they'll say about whoever actually originally were said about Jewish people. So, there are three main motifs of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that we're going to hit on today. One, the blood libel, two, world domination, and three, disease spreading. Now, Disease spreading and the blood libel come from the medieval period, and world domination actually comes in around 1903 with the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which, if any of you are listening who know anything about conspiracy theories, you probably just went, ah, I know about that. Um, if not, you will know about it soon. Yes. So, what is blood libel? Well... It is the belief which began as early as 1144 in Norwich, England, and increased, this belief increased in England thereafter, but gained even more popularity after the events in Trent in the Holy Roman Empire in 1475, that through the crime and act of Jewish ritual murder, Jewish people would kidnap young Christian boys, ritualistically slaughter them in a mockery of the crucifixion, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Circumcise. Circumcise. I was trying to say castrate, and I'm like, that's wrong. No, 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 no. <laughs> God did not ask that of Abraham. No. Different thing. Circumcise them, and then drink their blood in Jewish religious rituals frequently Passover. Okay, I'm going to stop everybody right here. This has never happened. This is a, this is not a real crime that was happening in the Middle Ages. Jewish people do not kidnap Christian children to, to drink their blood. They have never done that. They will never do that. It's not a thing. But everybody And one of the ingredients of matzah is isn't not blood. blood. But this is something that was believed particularly in Trent in 1475. Um so <laughs> Yeah, just had to get the this did not ever happen out of the way. This is a false crime. This is a very early conspiracy theory. Um, and it is a false um, accusation. Yes. Even even more tellingly that, that this was a false accusation that started out in Trent and then it started to spread. Yes. It, go on, Morgana. She's, she's leading on this because she's written papers about it. Um, so... Also, before we continue, I have to give another caveat. Uh, we are talking about the Middle Ages. We are talking about the Europe in the Middle Ages. Um, Europe and the Middle Ages are not a homogenous entity where everybody acted the exact same all the time. That's just not how it yeah. was. Yeah. So, <laughs> Europe at various times and places, there was a fear and suspicion of Jewish people. Um, it started very early um, in the pre-12th century. There was just a general suspicion of Jewish people because there was a belief 
that Jews had helped crucify Jesus. It was their fault, which mom can attest to this is a thought that continued at least into her childhood. Yes, yes. I I first heard it um, in my family that the reason that Jewish people weren't trusted was because uh, they had helped crucify Christ. Of course, I, I was confused by this, and I said, but Jewish people stone people to death if they kill them. Um, they, they don't crucify. That's, that's Rome. And my dad said, yep, you're absolutely right. But because there was a group of people who thought that Jesus was causing a lot of problems in Jerusalem— uh, they sent people around to tell the crowd of Jewish people who were gathered there to call for the thief Barabbas to be pardoned by Pontius Pilate. Because Pontius Pilate really didn't want to crucify Jesus. So they said, hey, so, hey, I will, I will pardon one of these guys. How about that? I'll pardon one of these guys. Tell me who you want. And the people who were mad at Jesus were louder than the people who loved Jesus. That's it. That's the closest thing that you can come to to say Jewish people had anything to do with this. And I got kicked out of a Sunday school because I argued on that point vociferously. It's okay. I didn't really like the teacher anyway. And uh, this is this is why Barbara, you know, is not allowed to work and play with children in uh, weekend Bible school or in <laughs> so summer many Bible other school. I was I was just told to go back home and no you can't make macaroni art about Noah's ark. Goodbye. You must go. So, it 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 was never a thing, but it is commonly believed to probably this day. Yes, in certain evangelical communities. I have heard yes. it myself. Um So, in medieval society, to an extent, and in general, and in different degrees, in different places, um, Jewish people were looked at with some suspicion by Christians. Um, although there were plenty of times and plenty of places where Jewish people, Muslim people, and Christian people all got along pretty well for hundreds of years and there was not issues. Uh, that's basically the history of Europe and the three Abrahamic faiths, is they got along great until they didn't, and then there were pogroms and crusades. Uh, sometimes at the same tell, time. Tell them what a pogrom is a pogrom, and how it's different from a crusade. A pogrom is basically a very violent riot directed at the Jewish people of a city or town in which their houses are burned, their goods are stolen, and they're all killed. Or run off. Or run off. If, or run if away. If they're lucky. Uh, a crusade is a war sanctioned and called for by the Pope against an enemy of Christ. So you could technically call a crusade against the Jewish people. I don't think there, there weren't ever, there wasn't ever a crusade called against the Jewish people. They were no. mostly called against the Muslims or against Christians themselves or against heretics. Um, but during the first crusade, as the crusaders were working their way towards the Ottoman empire, they did commit several pogroms against Jews because they got confused and their religious fervor got 
really whipped up and they were like, the Jews are the enemies of Christ, so we're going to kill them. And it was awful. And the Pope was actually really unhappy with them for that one. That was a different Pope than the other one who said, kill them all, let God sort them out. Yes. That was also the Albigensian crusade. (laughs) Yeah, that was was a different Pope. Not a nice Pope. But that, that term has been used to this day and is used to this day um, by people who consider themselves sort of modern-day crusaders. Yes, which is interesting because that term was actually used by um, a bishop who was writing with, a, with the knights of the during the Albigensian Crusade, which was a crusade against Christians. So... Yeah. That was, I I always find that interesting. A lot of people envision the Crusades as just against, you know, Muslims or against non-Europeans. There were Crusades against the French. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the Crusades aren't as simple as, you know, oh, Christian versus Muslim or European versus, you know, the Ottomans. No, The, the Crusades were messy and got everybody and it was bad. Um, pretty mm-hmm. much large parts of medieval history are messy. And not all of them are bad, which is another thing that we tend to like to do about the Middle Ages is say they were the Dark Ages and everything was awful. And no, everything wasn't awful. Everything also wasn't sweetness and light. And blood libel is one of those not sweetness and light moments and one of those awful moments. So, Jews pre-12th century looked at with suspicion, but they were also an essential part of society because Jewish people had higher literacy rates. They were skilled craftsmen. They were tradesmen with ties to the Ottoman Empire and to the other empires of the East in a way that other medieval peoples were not. Uh, They frequently spoke multiple languages. um, And unlike Christians they could not commit the sin of usury. This is very important, and this is also where some of the uh, violence towards the Jewish peoples comes from. Um, We all know the stereotype of Jewish people as being money-grubbing. This is a result of the fact that Christians in the Middle Ages could not lend money. So Jews did it. Um, Jewish people were contracted by Christian bankers to actually do the money handling. They o- Jewish people opened their own banks. Kings used Jewish people as royal bankers to get and tax, collectors. and tax collectors to get around the sin of usury, which is the sin of lending money with interest. Um, and yeah, you can you can you can you know lend out a couple shekels here and there and and then get it back what you can't do is make money by lending money by charging interest yes that's that's what usury is and does that come about because of the jesus smacking the money changers at the temple the money lenders at the temple um that's part of it it's also a rich man can't pass through the gates of heaven it's part of the you know You know, you're supposed to be being Christ-like. You're supposed to be living more in poverty than in riches. You're not supposed to be engaging with the things of this earth. Mm-hmm. Um, riches can lead to corruption, which takes you away from God. Um, okay. So the popes and all that, 
were just skating by. <laughs> just kind of like, oh, okay, we, we won't do the usury, but we'll get the Jewish people to do the yes. usury. But now we're not going to trust them because they do the usury. <laughs> and it was sort of a catch-22. It also, when things went badly, when there was famine or when there was war or anything else that impacted the economy and made people's bellies a little less full or their purse a little lighter, they would turn against the Jewish people because they were the face of the money lending trade, even though quite frequently they were employed by Christians and who owned the bank themselves. Um, things took a turn in the 12th century um, when it came to being suspicious of Jewish people at the Fourth Lateran Council, where sumptuary laws were enacted, which is Jewish people had to wear a distinctive piece of clothing to mark them as Jewish. Um, Why, that sounds familiar. Yes. Yes, the Nazis got that idea from the Fourth Lateran Council and from large chunks of medieval history. Um, restrictions between Jewish and Christian interaction were put in place. You weren't supposed to intermarry. Um, you couldn't, if you were Christian, you couldn't have Jewish servants. If you were Jewish, you couldn't have Christian servants, for example. Um, Jewish people were subjected to higher taxes, amongst other things. So you have this suspicion that is institutional from the Pope down, because the Fourth Lateran Council is a theological council of the Pope and all the bishops where they come up with canon law. Um, it, the Fourth Lateran Council did a whole lot of other stuff, but it's not pertinent to what we're talking about right now. And don't get me started because I'll talk about the Fourth Lateran Council for a minute. <laughs> and nobody More wants that. More than one minute. More than a minute. It'll be a while. Um, so you have, like I said, you have this, this suspicion that's now institutionalized. And you also have community suspicion of Jewish people. And this, this is the breeding ground for an accusation of Jewish ritual murder. And all it takes really at that point when you already have a climate of anti-Semitism and suspicion is you just need a child to go missing. Yeah. And after that, it just takes the community to report it to the authorities while they point the finger at the Jewish community and a Jewish ritual murder trial is on and everybody's screwed. Um, in Trent in 1475, that is exactly what happened. Trent was a bishopric in the Holy Roman Empire that was culturally Germanic Italian that was ruled by Bishop Hinderbach. Um, it was in what would become the Tyrol region um, the Holy Roman Empire, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, was a really messy conglomeration of bishoprics, duchies, towns, cities, principalities, principalities kingdoms, all smushed together, ruled over, overseen by the Holy Roman Emperor, but individually ruled by counts and dukes and bishops and kings and lords all together, and it was very, it was a patchwork of difference. It's sort of, sort of like the United States is a patchwork of different state law overseen by federal law, but even more confusing. 
especially since they would go to war with each other all the time each, all the time like like okay so there was no germany at that time no. most of germany was the holy roman empire there there were bits of pieces of like czechoslovakia and, and other places that were also part of the uh, holy roman empire which you know that got greedy guts adolf hitler all into like oh but it used to be part of us no it used to be part of the holy roman empire dude and you used to be part of the holy roman empire and germany was never like (laughs) i'm in charge of the holy no the holy roman emperor (laughs) was in charge of the holy roman empire that's right and he was not german sit down all right so um you just have to understand that it would be like They just argued with each other, and they would sort of trade rulers, and sometimes two principalities would smush together into one, but then the next king would come and get deposed, and boom, they'd be separated again, and it's so confusing. Yes. And in this place, at this time, right after Easter, and right before Passover, or during Passover, right after Easter... Um, a little, a young boy named Simon goes missing and nobody can find him. It's reported to the Podesta, which is the police force in this town that he is missing and they look and his father looks and his mother looks and it starts being whispered around the neighborhood. Oh, we should check the Jewish households. There are three Jewish families in Trent. There are three. That's it. They're large households, but uh, there's three Jewish families, two money, uh, the heads of the families are Tobias, who is a doctor. Um, there were a lot of Jewish doctors in the Middle Ages. Back then and, and now. Um, because they had access to, you know, a lot of the Arabic texts and a lot of the Hebrew texts that were better than the texts that Europe had access to when it came to medicine. Jewish doctors and Muslim doctors tended to be better doctors. Kings would quite frequently call them in when their normal medicine and normal doctors couldn't figure it out. They'd be like, okay, go find a Jewish or a Muslim doctor, please, so I don't die. Um, And Tobias was a doctor. Engel and Samuel, the heads of the other two households, were both moneylenders. So it's whispered around the neighborhood, hey, we should check. Samuel Engel and Tobias's houses. And this starts to make everybody a little nervous. Uh, and then Passover comes and goes, and one of the servants goes into Samuel's cellar and finds Simon washed inside because they had a ritual, they had a cistern basically that was fed by a di- an open ditch full of water that flowed into the basement. And there is dead young Simon. Looks like he's flowed in through the ditch. And everybody panics. And the three heads of households agree, you know, we should go and report this like a good citizen would. Because we found the poor dead boy in our basement washed in. I really hope they don't all think that we killed him. But what do we do? So they go and they report it. Um, they are miraculously not detained at first, so they go home. Tobias examines the boy, comes to the conclusion that he drowned and the marks on his body, including a wound to his penis, looked to have been infl- inflicted by banging into things in the water. 
Um, and then around 8 or 9 o'clock at night, the Podesta comes, takes the body of Simon out of the house, and the body bleeds in the presence of the three Jewish heads of household. Now, this is sort of the medieval version of a smoking gun because there yeah. was a belief that if a corpse bled in the presence of others, it was bleeding in the presence of evil, of an evil person, or the murderer. Now, we know now forensically this is utter nonsense. <laughs> yeah. But they didn't know that at the time. So they arrest all the male members of all three households and cart them off to the dungeon and begin to put them to the question. Now, I can hear people thinking, okay, well, if they didn't murder him, if nobody murdered Simon, why did everybody just assume they murdered Simon and then proceed on that assumption? Like, okay, well, the kid, dead kid bled in the presence of them. I, okay, they were arrested on that because in the Middle Ages, that was a smoking gun. Cool. Why did they continue to be imprisoned? And the answer is... Judicial torture, I, I hate making the Middle Ages sound like the Dark Ages, but judicial torture was a valid form of questioning then. Uh, so Simon, Tobias, and Engel were all tortured, as were all the male members of their household, as were some of the women folk. And what was the purpose of this torture? To, it was very leading question. <laughs> very leading questioning. Um, Mm -hmm. They did not proceed on the basis of, did you kill the boy? They said, basically, you killed the boy. Why? <laughs> did you kill the boy yeah. because you needed his blood for your Passover ritual? It was accepted thoughts in the minds of the questioners and the judge and the police force that this was a case of Jewish ritual murder. They knew why the boy had been killed. They just needed the Jewish people to admit it. And so that's what they so did. they tortured them. They tortured them until they admitted it. They tortured them until they gave the names of other Jewish people from other towns who they had bought blood from. They made up an anthropology, essentially. Like, a, they made up, you know, an entire religious ritual that doesn't exist to satisfy their torturers and make the pain stop. And this ethnography of blood, which is what it's called in the book that I learned about Trent from, which is an excellent book. It's going to be in the show notes. Um, satisfied, you know, all the torturers and the trial was concluded. All of them were found guilty. The men were all executed. The women were forcibly converted and the children were forcibly baptized and probably taken from their mothers. And Jewish ritual murder cases spread beyond the town and entered a flare of them, a flap almost, like a UFO flap. But mm -hmm. because they had given the names of other Jewish people who probably weren't real Jewish people because they were trying to not get other people killed at that point still, but it didn't matter. They were like, oh, there are other Jewish people out there who do Jewish ritual murder. We have to look for them. So the surrounding towns started to have accusations of Jewish ritual murder arise, and it spread from there. And 
Jewish ritual murder cases carried on along with pogroms it well into the 15th and 16th centuries and really didn't stop until the witch trials fully kicked in, probably because there was a new scapegoat. We'll talk about that next time. Um, uh, but where you find uh, Jewish ritual murder and anti-Semitism, you will also find witchcraft, fears, and misogyny. Yes. They kind of they kind of hold hands in the uh, in the conspiratorial minds of Christian Europeans. Now, don't get it that we're saying all Christians are bad. We're not. We're just saying that this is how it happened. Um, this is this is how it happened, and it does have to do with today. It does. So this blood libel tale which is what Jewish ritual murder came to be called. It came to be called the blood libel. Carries on. And the Nazis, actually. One, the Protestants, by the way, don't get it into your head that only Catholics did this. The Protestants were also anti-Semitic and carried oh, yeah. on the Martin tradition Luther. of the blood libel. And the suspicion yeah, Martin of Luther Jewish was people. into that. Yeah. Um, and then the that Nazis wasn't one of his questions. No, it was not one of his questions. Then the Nazis picked it up. In fact, a special edition of Der Sturmer in 1934 referenced it um, with the cover page being a picture of a young German boy surrounded by stereotypical portrayals of Jewish men who were drinking his blood from tubes. So it is a direct link into Nazi Germany. It also continues to this day, the blood libel. Um, the IDF has been accused of harvesting Palestinians' organs, and this was claimed in the Aftenbladet, which is a very popular Swedish newspaper. And the IDF stands for the Israeli Defense Force. Um, so it's their army. Yes. So uh, I'm not getting into the question of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because I think it's fucked up what the Israelis do quite yeah. frequently. Yeah. But I don't think they're deliberately harvesting people's organs. No. That's just not something I think is happening. Um, so we've, talked, we've touched on Nazis with blood libel. We've touched on another modern conspiracy with blood libel. And now we're going to talk about a really famous current conspiracy theory that does draw from the blood libel. And I'm sorry, it's QAnon. Uh, yeah, while that's what that adenochrome business is. Yes, the target accused of drinking the blood of children is instead Democratic and Hollywood elites. It's pretty obvious that the idea of ritualistically taking the blood of children stems from blood libel, and the entire concept of Hollywood elites and a shadowy cabal of the elites controlling the world is itself also an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, which we now come to the protocols of the elders of Zion. Okay, so I first ran across the protocols of the elders of Zion in the 1970s in the library at Kanawha County in Charleston, um, which was my favorite place. I loved that place. I would just sit there all day and read and smell books. 
Uh, but somebody had gone in and put pamphlets in between the books in the section I was in, and it, it, it was pamphlets talking about the vast Jewish conspiracy, how they control the money and economies of the world. This was during uh, a, a period of time when we had like really high gas prices. There was the oil shortage, blah, 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 all of that. So they were blaming the higher gas prices on Jewish people. Uh, it had, you know, clearly it had nothing to do with the um, countries in the Middle East who were producing the oil. Uh, so I, you know, I told the the uh, the librarians and they got rid of them. But I took one home and I showed it to my dad, and he said, "Oh, that," and he said that. That is a conspiracy theory. And so he had to explain to me what a conspiracy theory was. And he essentially told me what I'm going to tell you, which is that in 1903, uh, this, this supposed uh, truth that there was a shadowy cabal of Jewish people who all through time have been controlling the world economy, the world media, and causing religious conflict. So, so the protocols say this has been going on since the medieval era, right? But you don't see the conspiracy, you don't see the protocols until 1903. And it was serialized in a Russian newspaper called The Banner. And uh, it... It caused a little bit of a stir, and then it was it was taken, and in 1905, it was added to a book, also in Russia, that was called The Great and the Small, The Coming Antichrist and the Rule of Satan on Earth, and it was by a supposed mystic named Sergei Nilis. Can I say he does not sound as chill as most mystics sound? Um, he sounds a little bit paranoid, but hey, whatever. And that's when it really started to spread, after he put it into this this book that was about the coming apocalypse. You often have uh, these blood libels and uh, anti-Jewish se anti sentiment rising around ideas of apocalypse, of a great change or a great battle. Yes, you do. Morgana's taking a deep, a deep breath there. Um, Go ahead. Yes, you do. You also have that with witches, um, at yep. least in the medieval era and extensively in the modern era, you would have so you would have great persecutions would coincide with extremely troubled times. So mm -hmm. during the Black Plague, pogroms. During famine pogroms during warfare pogroms during all of these cases of jewish ritual murder would increase there were or also cases of accusations of, of jewish because ritual there weren't murder. any cases of it when when i say cases of jewish ritual murder i mean cases in court not right sorry that you're right that i i need to explain that piece of language um cases that would go to court of jewish ritual murder because again this never happened 
Yeah. I, I, I cannot be more clear. Jewish people have never kidnapped Christian children to drink their blood and kill them in a mock crucifixion. Ever. Yep. End of sentence, end of story, boom. Um, but let's let's go back to the protocols. Because I haven't even gotten to the Russian Revolution. There you go. Um, so then the Russian Revolution happens in 1917. And ooh, in 1918, we have what? A plague, right? Yep. 1918, Spanish flu. Yes, we also we have a what? War. World War. So we've got the trifecta here, guys. We got a revolution. We've got not only a revolution, but one that is a whole new like system of government. They're they're experimenting with this whole idea of communism, uh, which is pretty bold. It's a very bold move. Uh, but then you also have the Spanish flu killing people left and right all over the place, and then you have World War One killing people left and right and all over the place. So it's like big stuff is happening. Well, after the revolution, a lot of Russian people who were royalists, who, who really liked uh, the czar, emigrated, the rich ones, because they had the money to do it. And so they, they left, went to other places in Europe, and they went to the United States. And when they came to the United States, they brought the Elder Protocols with them. Yay. I would have rather they brought us samovars and, like, borscht, really, honestly. But no, we got the protocols. And somehow Henry Ford got a hold of them. And he gave them to hit one of his newspapers. He owned several newspapers, by the way. And it's called the Dearborn Independent. This is the one that he gave it to. And so it was serialized, just like it was in Russia decades earlier, and uh, they, they basically put it together and published it. And everybody thought, oh, wow, we didn't know that. We, you know, Jewish people are just, they're, they're a little shady because they won't convert. I think that's the main problem is they won't convert to Christianity. And that know. has been a problem for Christians. Not all Christians, not all Christians throughout history, but it has been a problem for some Christians and some Christian denominations since Christianity happened, sadly. Then after it was in the newspaper, it came out in a book called The International Jew. <sighs> well, you know, this, this document has, you know, it's, it first surfaces in 1903. Now we're in the 1920s. And it's in an, another book. It's been published twice in books. And uh, it claims to be from an earlier period than the 19th century. It claims to be from the Middle Ages. It's not. Okay. It isn't. It's just not. Uh, in, fact, in fact, the journalists at the London Times decided to do serious uh, research on it. And they found in 1921... Not only was it a hoax, it was plagiarized. And what was it plagiarized from? It was plagiarized from a 19th century French satire called Dialogue in Hell Between Machiavelli and Montesquieu by Maurice uh, Joffrey. So 
it had nothing to do with Jewish people. Machiavelli was a Catholic, and, and so was the other guy they were talking about. Both of them were philosophers, and apparently they were talking about, um, you know, the the different ways monarchs can get together and uh, rule the world. And what was their advice? Well, you got to control the economy, you got to control the media, and then you got to create religious conflict, which is the exact things that the protocols say Jewish people do. And they also found another um, bit of it that came from a novel by Hermann uh, Gretsch. It's, it's, it's a German name with too many um, consonants and not enough vowels. I don't like it, so I'm not going to pronounce it, but I'll put it in the uh, show notes. And there was one chapter of it that, that touched upon bits and pieces of the protocols. So that was proved in 1921. But you know what? 1935, a Swiss court basically said, no, 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 no. This is, this is crap. Uh, some, some Nazis came in. They loved it, by the way. They oh, thought it was the great. the Nazis and they, used it as a cornerstone. Oh, yeah. They, they published 23 editions of it in between 1919 and 1939. They were busy. And they loved it. And so much of Hitler's ideas came from this. And then he, you know, he wrote that down and then added to it and called it uh, My Struggle, Mein Kampf, you know, whatever. Um, anyway, so in 1935, Switzerland says, hey, that's anti-Semitic. It's also a hoax. Get out of here and find the Nazis who were distributing it in, in uh, Switzerland and kicked them out of the country. Then the U.S. Senate in 1964 had to say again, no, this is a hoax. This is not anything that has to do with Jewish people. Here's where it came from. Then in 1993, it's still going, guys. It's still going. A Russian court ruled a russian court ruled that this nationalist group was spreading anti-semitism and they were convicted of it and then in 2004 you would think by 2004 we would know better but we do not the united states state department says the clear purpose of the protocols of the elders of zion is to incite hatred of jews it contains nothing of value or truth. And that's just a partial list of the times that this particular hoax has been debunked. And it seems like you have to debunk it about every 10 years or so. And even so, you still find pamphlets that supposedly came from the Middle Ages that, that what they're supposed to be is they're supposed to be the minutes of a meeting of the ancient Jewish cabal of evil doers who are uh, trying to take over the world. It's, it's the meeting minutes. It's, it's the secretary wrote it down and then apparently mailed it to everybody so that people could find out about it and then go after the Jewish cabal, who never are found at all, ever, ever, ever. And It's I, not real, y'all. I also love... Whoever decided to set this in the Middle Ages, I'm like, you didn't, you knew, apparently you 
did not come to this podcast ever or, you know, learn anything about the Middle Ages or you would know that there are plenty of time periods in the Middle Ages where Jewish people were really screwed and certainly did not have time to try and take over the world because they were busy fleeing from various countries and getting kicked out of various countries and were the underdogs quite frequently. Pretty much. Yeah. At least in Europe for yeah. large chunks of time. Not for all chunks of time, but for large chunks of time. It was not good to be Jewish in Europe, in so, various parts of Europe at various times. Venice, it was pretty okay. Yeah. And all Andalus was pretty good. Oh, yeah. Any, anything, That's the once Iberian you were, Peninsula. Once you were in the Iberian Peninsula or once you were in the Ottoman Empire, you were fine, generally. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was dealing with you know, various and sundry Catholic monarchies that you were not fine at various yeah. and sundry points in time. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're not even going to touch on the Inquisition or and the Spanish Inquisition, but basically why we're going on about the, the protocols is because it supposedly is this old, old document. It isn't. It's no older than the mid-19th century, which is mm -hmm. when the satire was written. Yep. And so some guy found that book, could read French, thought it was pretty cool and said, hey, let's start some, let's start some shit, you know? Let's just do that. Um, anyway, the whole reason that we're talking about it is having to do with today is it is still spread around among white supremacist groups. It to is this a major day, cornerstone of white supremacist groups. Whether they know it or not, they are repeating the accusations and the lies from the protocols of the elders of Zion. And like we said, it was a cornerstone of Nazi ideology. Yeah. So people who are copying the Nazis are going to copy this as well. Um, and the whole idea of a Hollywood elite is basically a dog whistle for Jewish people because a large number of Jewish people worked in Hollywood still do. Some of them owned the, um, the, the, the 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 theater companies and the and the and the uh, film companies, and some of them were directors, some of them were writers, some of them were actors, some of them were all of the above. But if you say, "Well, the Hollywood elite are keeping themselves beautiful by what is it? Is it bathing in the adenochrome of children drinking. or the drinking it?" Okay, all right, so that's fine. Whatever. That is basically a repetition with a slight twist of the old blood libel. And the protocols and of the soon, elders of Zion. At the same time. I, yeah, as soon as I heard that, I was like, you know, can't they get a new one? I mean, they're basically repeating the same stuff over and over, and people are still falling for it. Yep. And think about how many conspiracy theories are based off of this. I mean, this is an this is, this conspiracy theory is older than the Illuminati. Yeah, this conspiracy theory is older than the deep state. Yep, this conspiracy theory is <laughs> goes hand in hand with the Hollywood elite thing, which is an old and new conspiracy theory, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and tying it with the democratic leadership is also anti-Semitic because, honestly, a lot of Jewish people support progressive values, which is what 
well, the Democrats are supposed to support progressive values. Some of them don't do so oh, good. Well, you also but it's have just a direct a link. You have what's the what's the thing that everybody says? Oh, George Soros funds. Oh, Antifa. Yeah. yeah, George Soros. He is the guy who who gives us money so we can go out and protest. And he owes me a check. Damn it! I'm really upset that he's never paid me. But whatever. Yeah, and George Soros. I, I is guess I don't do it right. A Jewish and be a Holocaust survivor. And by the way, Holocaust denialism, I think, is adjacent to conspiracy theory, if not a conspiracy theory all of its own. And if I have to explain to you why Holocaust denialism is anti-Semitic, I. None of our listeners need to no. know that. They, they already know that. But I'm going to point out Holocaust denialism is also tied into anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And yes. I think that's part because of why it is, they target it, George Soros. That and he does have it's money. A, it, it's a huge conspiracy, uh, the whole Holocaust denial thing, because apparently all of those photographs were faked. And yes. The... the, the, uh, the the people who saw it, you know, were lying and making it up. General Eisenhower made it up, you know, whatever. That It's just, I can't even with all that. Yeah. And QAnon does draw from this, both indirectly, as we've already discussed, but also quite explicitly. Um, two QAnon influencers, Dylan Wheeler and Jordan Sattler, dabble in anti-Semitism, with Wheeler directly speaking about the Jewish question, which in QAnon speak is the basically the global cabal of Jewish deep state control over the world. Um, in an interview in 2019, um, commenting that Israel and the Jewish peoples are allied with the United States deep state to control the world, while Sattler uses the triple parentheses echo in online typing, which is an alt-right dog whistle. Um, I don't know how many of you know that, but if you see somebody put three parentheses on either side around a word, that's an alt-right call for Jewish. Um a QAnon member threatened California State Senator Scott Weiner in 2019, stating that he would be lynched like Leo Frank, who, by the way, Leo Frank was a Jewish man who was wrongly accused of raping a 13-year-old girl, was imprisoned in 1913, and then lynched after being kidnapped from prison in 1915. Where um, did this lovely thing happen? Oh, Lord, I did not write it down. I believe... Is it the U.S.? yes. Okay, all right. It's what I figured, but I wanted to make sure. Um, so even, and also, QAnon is a big tent conspiracy theory, essentially. It's, when I say QAnon influencers, I mean that they, QAnon is based around the Q drops from the mysterious Q online who writes in code. At this point, he's on 8-Coon because he started on 4chan. He or she started on 4chan, ended up on 8chan, got kicked off there. Now they're on 8-Coon. Um, and the Q, Q drops things, and then QAnon influencers will interpret and speak about what they think the drops mean. And they audience participation is just as important to the QAnon movement as the Q drops themselves are in many ways. So 
to an extent, it's kind of a choose your own adventure. And if you come in with a particular type of bigotry, you're going to see it in Q. Yeah. So yeah, that's why there's there is anti LGBTQ stuff, anti LGBTQ dash Q stuff. <laughs> there's yeah, double Q. Um. So does anybody remember Save the Children? Um, oh yeah, Save the Children was an offshoot of the Q movement. Um, it's not just about hey, vaccines, the COVID nineteen vaccine is going to put microchips in us. Although that you can even tie to the book of revelations and the sign of the beast and all kinds of other stuff. And people in Q have. Yeah. And it's not all Q. I mean, there's people who have their very own conspiracy theories that they've been going on about. Um, A lot of this was going on in like 1998, 1999, because the millennial conspiracy that, you know, everything was going to get screwed up on the computer system because of the zeros. And, but, you know, that didn't happen because a bunch of programmers and techies fixed the problem. So that thing that was supposed to, you know, mess up all the computers everywhere in the world did not happen. But people, something that marks a thousand years having passed really makes people jittery. Because in the year 1000, there was all kinds of apocalyptic, you know, oh yeah, uh, rumors and you know craziness and people being afraid and people sitting on a hill waiting for Jesus to come back and all of that. That happened in 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 you know the year one thousand as well, and it happened in the year two thousand. And so, you know, basically anti-Semitism and apocalyptic worldviews and being in a world that has stressors going on all over the world, like a pandemic, a contested election. Jeez, uh, what War. else do we have? Oh, another possible pandemic because we have the pox. We're really, we're really just hitting a thousand in yeah. the world. There's Climate several wars. There's wars. There's climate oh, yes. change, there's Ukraine famine, and, there's yeah. drought, and not there's just... all kinds of crazy. The world is unstable right now. And in and unstable times... a lot of this. We look, we look to conspiracy theories, and we look from conspiracy theories to scapegoats. And speaking of plague, let's talk about the conspiracy theory that Jewish people poisoned the wells uh, in the Gentile parts of town during the Black Death to spread the Black Death to them. This was a theory in the Middle Ages. This was a theory used to explain why in some Jewish communities fewer Jewish people died than Christian people. Probably because they're... Honestly, it's been theorized that the mikvah, the the ritual bathing, helped. Um... But nobody's I was quite to point sure out. I was also going to point out when you were talking about the Jewish and Arabic doctors uh, having more success with their patients, I think a large chunk of that simply had to do with better sanitation. They washed their hands between patients. They washed their hands after touching a sick person. Or a dead person. Or a dead person. 
So that that is probably part of it. And so, as you say, the mikvah, the, the ritual cleansing, probably had something to do with it. And general sanitation also, because if you keep kosher, you're cleaner. all of your food is purified with salt and, and water and all of those things. So, yeah, and, they probably had fewer pathogens around. And also, Jewish people were frequently put in... Uh, were, restricted to the Jewish quarter, so much less coming and going and mixing with people. But yeah, no, it's it's because the Jewish people are poisoning the wells and killing everybody with the Black Death because we need a scapegoat, apparently, in medieval times. And today, before anybody starts thinking they're better than a medieval peasant, we scapegoat the bejesus out of people all the time right now, which is oh, yeah. part of why we're doing this episode. Yeah. <laughs> And the, and the one that's going to follow. So the whole thing about poisoning a well, I, you know, having read the Bible over and over because I tried so hard to be a good Christian and I just wasn't. Um, I remember a passage that's going to get brought up again next time in the King James Version of the Bible from Exodus that says, Suffer not a witch to live. Now, King James had a thing. He had a hard on for witches. He had a thing. He, he really did. He he didn't like witches. They were bad. And by the way, that wasn't in the medieval times. That's considered the early modern yes, period. Yes, it is. So, just saying, just saying, you're supposed to be developing and getting smarter. Doesn't always work that way. Um, one of the possible translations that it could have been. Because the, the word that is used, let me see if I can read my own handwriting here. Oh, that's a horrible word. It's mekhashetfa. It's Hebrew. I probably murdered it. I'll put it in the show notes. Anyway, there's several different ways it can be translated. And you also have to remember before the King James Version of the Bible was translated into the vernacular English, it had gone through lots of translations between the Hebrew to the English. It didn't go straight. And several cutting room floors. Oh, lots of cutting room floors. We could talk about that all night. Uh, Anyway, it went from Hebrew to Greek or Aramaic to Greek, and then it went from Greek to Latin, and then from Latin to, to English. corrupted Latin. Oh well, okay. You've you've got you got me on that one. So <laughs> sorry. Some of some of the other possibilities for translating other than which is an herbalist, pharma pharmakeia. That's an herbalist in Greek, or it could also translate as poisoner. And there was a big deal about poisoning wells in the biblical period because the Jewish people came from an arid environment where there wasn't water just, you know, all over the place. uh, It was a big deal. It, it was a great crime to poison a well, ever. And you always shared water with uh, strangers, even if they were your enemy. 
because in dry areas like that, arid areas, water is a necessity. So the whole idea that Jewish people would poison any well just makes my head spin and my head shake. And I'm just like, dudes, y'all, it's not likely. Just, it's not. So, why are we talking about a medieval conspiracy theory about well poisoning to spread disease? Well, no pun intended. Well, because guess what? People are still blaming Jewish people for deliberately spreading disease. Yes, because we suck as humans. Humans are just awful sometimes. Really, we're just dreadful. Um... Some, cons- some conspiracy theorists state that the United States and Israel created COVID-19 as a bioweapon to commit to kill political rivals, which we already discussed. But a Swiss cult leader, Ivo Sasek, head of the Organic Christian Generation. I want to know what Organic Christian Generation means because all I can think in my head is a bunch of farmers like training vines to grow in the shape of the crucifixion. You have a very interesting mind. Um, Just saying. Sent out flyers blaming George Soros, again, this poor man, blaming George Soros creating COVID-19 as a bioweapon. So even that, busy. even that little tidbit from the Middle Ages about well poisoning has resurfaced. Yeah. Further theories. It's, it's, oh, sorry. I'm, I'm just... It's so interesting that it all goes back to the Middle Ages. Oh, it goes back further, I'm sure. It just I know it does, but it, it's just such a straight line from the Middle Ages. You don't have to reach off to the side. It's you can watch the development of these ideas so directly from the Middle Ages that it's it's uncanny. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's people don't think of the Middle Ages as a time of cultural development but they really were and not just in a bad way massive quantities of good things came out of the middle ages too systems of government uh, concepts of courtly love music poetry art writing medicine books books, you know um chivalry all of these other really useful things came out of the middle ages too you know, canon law, the concept of law, the concept of trial by, like, the Middle Ages got rid of trial by combat and created trial by jury, okay? (laughs) They may still have had judicial torture, but they invented trial by jury and were very happy they did. Yes. Yes, Well, not necessarily trial by jury all the time, but trial in a court. By a judge. By a judge. By a court. With you could call it for evidence. There were lawyers were invented. Well, lawyers weren't invented. Like nobody went to a laboratory and like grew a lawyer and was like, "There we go, Eureka." How do you know that's not true? I mean, really, <laughs> it could be. It could be. It could work that way. It could. <laughs> My no, p- I was just the 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 thing about the Middle Ages is lots of people of European extraction like to look back at the Middle Ages kind of fondly. Either we treat it like everybody was horrible, you know, and, oh, you know, they're just being so medieval, you know, like they they think evil, you know, because that's the end of the word. 
and and they talk about violence being medieval but there's also this strange longing for the middle ages because life seemed to be so much simpler it wasn't and a lot of white sup- supremacist groups hearken back to the middle ages but the the ideas they have about it are wrong are what we call medievalist no thought. medievalism Me- medievalism sorry medievalist is different yes medievalism and that's where you have this whole idea about men have to protect women and it's always white men have to protect white women and the whole idea of women being subservient and all of that stuff that's that's what they believe about it but most of those ideas came about in the 19th century as part of the romantic literary movement yes and the victorian literary and art movements and just the way that people wrote down history was back wonky then, yeah they they you know, history has always been written by the, the winners of any given war, but in it got real flowery in the in the Victorian times, and so they basically would write these uh, golden age kind of narratives of what the medieval past was like, and they would gloss over a lot of other stuff, and it, it was really, it's like Walt Disney invented it. Yes. That, that's kind of how how yes. that works. Which is very apt because Walt yeah, Disney sanitized the bejesus out of plenty of medieval stories. Yeah. And and that's that's a hundred percent true. And uh there's a there's a term for what, what they're doing here. The hearkening back to a golden era where everything was better in the past is an example of what the philosopher Ken Wilber calls the pre-trans fallacy. Somewhere my husband is jumping up and down gleefully because I'm talking about the pre-trans fallacy. The reason he's jumping up and down is I used to have arguments with him, not about the validity of this idea, but about the fact that it's called the pre-trans fallacy because it's two, two pieces of a word Pre and trans, those are those are both prefixes to other words, and to me, it doesn't describe what the pre-trans fallacy is talking about. And what it's talking about is looking to the past for an era when everything was simple and good and beautiful and perfect that never existed. Yep. So that's kind of what happened. It. it the pre-trans fallacy is active in a lot of white supremacy movements when they start talking about uh, chivalry and all of that. Sorry, my dog was being Satan. Um, <laughs> Not today, Satan. Not, Not today. today. Um, and I think that those are the two dangers. Well, I think there are three dangers of looking at the medieval period. I think one is the pre-trans fallacy. One is it was just the dark ages and everybody was ignorant and everything was violent and everything was blood. And I think the third is deliberately misrepresenting what it was for white supremacist reasons or other 
hateful reasons. Hang on. So I'll talk now while she's fussing at her dog uh, because it's really funny. Anyway, um, basically what we wanted to get across this time is that the current uh, blood and sacrifice sort of centered conspiracy theories about adenochrome kidnapping children, eating children, abusing children, all of it came at least from the Middle Ages onward. And it is a motif that we see over and over, usually against Jewish people. Yes, and it is debunked over and over that have been proven wrong over and over. And the reason I wanted to do this episode... And I'll give you my reasoning, and then we'll let you go. So you can go, hopefully, do something cheerful after this one. It wasn't very funny this time, guys. I'm sorry. Um, We tried. But now... You can't make something uh, like this funny without being flippant and rude. And Um, tacky. You know, one conspiratorial thinking is can be found in the weirdosphere which we talk about. So I felt like it was fair game. It's part of the the weirdo sphere. And two, more importantly, there has been a resurgence of conspiracy theories in the mainstream. Many of them have dark roots in oppressive, violent times and regimes. And it's important to me to point this out so that we can be able to see where some of these falsehoods are coming from and can hopefully avoid where those falsehoods ended up taking people in the past. Because violence came after these became very popular. You know, you had the Nazi regime, you had pogroms, you had Jewish ritual murder trials that killed people, that killed entire families over a lie. Or cities, you know, it's just awful. And uh, we don't want to see it get that, go that far again. And, you know, now we have the Great Replacement Theory on mainstream television, which is another anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. What's that? The Great Replacement Theory is a white supremacist conspiracy theory that white people are being deliberately outbred by Jewish people and people of color so they can replace the white race. Okay. And that doesn't sound very bright. No. And this has been discussed on mainstream television. A lot. And that was one of the things they chanted in Charlottesville. Jews will not replace us or you will not replace us. But it was mostly Jews will not replace us. Yes. So you have these things happening. You have a great increase in in conspiracy theories on social media and online You have conspiracy theories in the mainstream media. And I just think we should be very careful about knowing where these things come from and where these things can lead to as where these things can go as a society. I think we have somewhat of a responsibility to ourselves and to each other to be at least somewhat decently informed about these things so we can guard against them and that's that's why I wanted to do this episode. 
Plus, she's a history major, and history's important. Uh, also, I just had a thought as you were talking about the connection of blood to aliens and abductions and cattle mutilations and how some of the aliens supposedly feed from the blood of humans in vats. They, they, like, they, they absorb it through their skin. So it is related a little bit to the weirdo sphere. It, yeah, kind of. But it, in a more harmless way. Yes. In a but blood is, is a motif kind of way, yes. Yeah. And <sighs> blood is a is a big motif in the in the other. And yes. maybe we'll talk about that at another time. But that's all for today. Um and then next week we will talk a little bit about conspiracy theory and women and witches so it'll be closer to the weirdo sphere because we'll be talking witches and satan yeah yeah but in order to do that we had to talk about this because where you find anti-semitism you also find misogyny yep those those two hatreds like to go hand in hand they're like peanut butter and jelly that's a weak ass joke but that's the best i can do tonight All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you for having patience. If you have any questions, you know you can send us an email. And thanks and good night. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you.